Welcome everyone to our latest Regulation Around the World podcast. My name is Simon Lovegrove. I'm the Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge here at Northern Rose Fulbright. In this edition of our podcast, our international partners will be taking a closer look at some of the announcements the regulators have made in light of the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia following its invasion of Ukraine. Our first guest is Jonathan Herbst, our Global Head of Financial Services Regulation, who will share his insights on recent UK developments. Jonathan, great to have you here. And as my first question, from a financial services regulatory perspective, what are you seeing in the market at the moment in response to the UK sanctions on Russia? Hi, everybody. Thanks, Simon. Um, so I, I draw out just two or three big points. I think the first is in the early few weeks of this whole period, there was a, an awful lot of what I would call tier one work, you know, immediate questions on a large variety of issues around secondary trading, primary markets questions, you know, particular counterparties closing out, margin, et cetera, et cetera. That was sort of phase one. I think things have begun to stabilize, I would say, in the last maybe three or four weeks. And we're now into a new phase, as we'll come on to perhaps in a minute, where people are looking more broadly at their systems and controls. Um, and so I think that's sort of the beginnings. And I think the second thing I draw out is we are beginning to see a little more activism from the regulators. You know, as we predicted, slowly but surely, certainly the FCA is beginning to you know, ask questions of firms and ask quite a lot of issues, not as say on the immediate, which it did from the very beginning, particularly on derivatives margin from a systemic point of view, but more from a conduct perspective. Thanks, Jonathan. For my second question, perhaps one of the common misconceptions among firms in the UK is that the financial sanctions regime and the anti-money laundering regime are one and the same. They're not. Can you briefly say a few words about this? Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think people often get tangled up on this. So <clears throat> they are two different regimes, although obviously uh, they have a relationship. So standard AML KYC doesn't include screening customers against UK financial sanctions. On the other hand, screening against financial sanctions is an addition to the AML CDD and is not the same. Now, clearly, they are very related. They all relate to financial crime in its broadest sense but they are distinct and they are cumulative. Thanks, Jonathan. And as my third question, whilst this podcast doesn't focus on the sanctions themselves, it's worth pausing for a second, particularly from a cross-border perspective on the patchwork approach of the sanctions and issues concerning interpretation. Can you say a few words about this? Sure. Well, look, a few things to say. The first is, it's a bit of a nightmare. I mean, all, all the specialists uh, who've been listening in have been living and breathing this the last few months. It's very patchwork. We have underlaps and overlaps between the different regimes, EU, US and UK in particular. I, I think the realities are that people who do global business are tending to adopt the toughest approach. Uh, I think that's just inevitable. The, what makes it very difficult is you can't point to any of the three regimes and say it is the toughest in all respects. So that's point number one. Um, point number two is I think linked to that, there are within each regime and across the regimes, a number of really tricky interpretational issues, which we and others have been dealing with. I mean, we can come on to this in a minute, but I would say that the overarching wrapper around both of those points is, 
you know, to have good governance around your systems and controls because dealing with the patchwork and dealing with the complexities of interpretation mean you've got to be on the ball, up to date and thinking about what you're doing. But perhaps we'll come to that in a moment. Thanks, Jonathan. As a further question in our update, we mentioned the FCA statement concerning the London Metal Exchange or LME. What are your thoughts on this statement? So look, I, I think the point that everyone who has been involved in these issues will be well aware of, well, there are two points actually. The first is that recent events have not just given rise to sanctions questions, they have also given rise to considerable market instability. So, so you know, setting aside metals as one instrument class, across the board, very high commodity prices and fluctuating commodity prices have led to a lot of sensitivity in relation to market conduct issues. And I would, what I would say on that is I think there is a danger with some firms that we've seen of the focus on the narrow sanctions questions crowding out, so to speak, you know, proper focus on market conduct. The regulators are very focused on that, point one. Point two, there were particular issues in the metals market without going into great detail. You know, everyone's aware of what the LME did to suspend the market and close out the positions retrospectively. You know, lots of sensitive issues. I think, I think where it leads is to lots of issues around uh, liability distribution across the market, and that's not unique to this sector. And also, you know, appropriate behaviours by markets, clearing brokers and clients. So a lot of subjects buried in there, perhaps a subject for a broader a podcast, but, you know, important macro messages, be as alive to market conduct as you are to the sanctions narrow regime. Thanks, Jonathan. Very interesting comments. And as my final question, I just want to come back to you on your earlier comments concerning systems and controls and good governance. What can firms do to prepare for any inquiries from the UK regulators as regards their sanctions compliance? Yeah, in my view, this is actually the biggest challenge because I think, let's all be honest about it, there's always this tendency to sort of deal with the panic rather than the longer term. And the panic is, you know, the new load of sanctions have come, regulations have come in, what do we need to do? What I'm talking about here, I think, is the level two medium term planning and what people need to be doing is number one documenting what they're doing you know the old adage if it isn't written down it doesn't exist is so true in this area and that applies both to sanctions compliance and aml broader compliance there is no question we've seen this from the uk regulators and it would be true elsewhere regulators are focused on financial crime as a general subject across aml sanctions and market conduct those three need to be looked at as a triangle. So have it written down. Secondly, think carefully about who is doing what within the firm. You know, whatever size you are, whether you're, you know, three people or 50,000 people, it's the same set of issues, just in a different way. You know, having clear MI going up, management information, proper reporting and escalation routes, all of that matters. And I, I think a little bit of time and effort spent on that now will, you know, reap very strong rewards because, as I say, the danger is people kind of move on to the next thing once the initial panic is over. And it is exactly at this point that the regulators are going to be under a lot of, you know, both um, political pressure, but a small p political pressure, and also sort of regulatory pressure to, you know, pursue and think about whether the industry is doing everything properly across those three the triangle, as I call it. So I think that's really what firms need to be doing. Not a new theme, 
but really bears repeating. Thanks, Jonathan, for your very helpful update on the UK position. Further information regarding what's happening in the UK and other jurisdictions can be found on our Beyond Sanctions microsite located on our Norton Rose Fulbright website. Again, thank you, Jonathan. That was really helpful. Pleasure. No problem, Sam. In this part of the podcast, we move across the Atlantic and focus on the United States, where I'm delighted to be joined by Kim Kane and Tom Delaney. Welcome to both of you. Let's start, Tom, with our update where we note that FinCEN has issued an alert reminding financial institutions about their reporting obligations under the Bank Secrecy Act. For those listeners who are not that familiar with the Bank Secrecy Act, could you please summarise what those reporting obligations are? Sure, Simon. Thanks for thanks for having me today. Um, essentially, uh, uh, financial institutions are obligated to file what is known as a suspicious activity report if they have if they know or have reason to suspect that a transaction that is conducted or attempted uh, to be conducted at their institution involves funds derived from illegal activity or are intended to disguise such funds. Um, Obviously, uh, this can this can involve a, a wide range of, of, of activities, and in light of the recent sanctions uh, in, involving Russia as a result of its activities in the Ukraine, um, these the recent guidance has focused very specifically on kleptocracy and foreign corruption. So there is a special uh, attentiveness now that uh, U.S. financial institutions uh, are supposed to give to being able to identify these kinds of transactions and if need be to report on them. Um, it's important also to note that institutions are expected to keep records on suspicious activity reports they file. They're supposed to keep them for five years. And, um, and they're also supposed to keep records of suspicious activity report or suspicious activity investigations that may not result in a report. Um, the last thing I would note here, Simon, is that in addition to suspicious activities, which is the, the, the substantial area of interest here on the part of the government's uh, suspicious activity reporting. Um, th- there is also uh, an interest in uh, require in reporting of transactions above $10,000 that would be in currency. So while these tend to be rare, whether they're regarded as suspicious or not, if transactions or associated transactions in currency cross that $10,000 threshold, a report would be required as well. Thanks, Tom. Kim, if I could just turn to you now. Uh, To begin with, could you summarise at a high level the latest sanctions that the US have imposed that would be of interest to financial institutions? Sure, Simon. Thank you. Um, The US has issued sweeping and unprecedented sanctions on Russia following the invasion of Ukraine at the end of February. Uh, We're not going to have time to go through all of these developments in great detail, but I'll briefly summarize at a high level, uh, perhaps the top 10 developments that are relevant to the financial services community. Um, As many of you all know, the U.S. has expanded the comprehensive sanctions relating to Ukraine to now include two breakaway republics of Ukraine, in addition to Crimea, resulting in severe restrictions on economic activity with those regions. 
Uh, there's also been a joint decision between the U.S. and its allies to remove several Russian banks from SWIFT, the network that supports international financial transactions. Uh, the U.S. has also issued, uh, imposed blocking sanctions on several entities and individuals, including several major Russian financial institutions and their subsidiaries, which effectively restrict their ability to do business in the United States and curtail their access to the U.S. financial system. Um, the U.S. has also issued correspondent and payment processing prohibitions on certain Russian financial institutions that restrict their ability to process payments through the U.S. financial system. Um, the U.S. has imposed new prohibitions relating to new debt and equity of major Russian state-owned enterprises and financial institutions. Um, the U.S. has also issued prohibitions relating to transactions that involve Russia's central bank. Um, which are essentially designed to immobilize any Russian central bank assets that are held in the U.S. or by U.S. persons. Um, the U.S. has also expanded sovereign debt prohibitions to new issuances in the secondary market. Um, it's also made a determination that any institution in the financial services sector of Russia, among certain other sectors, can be a target for further sanctions. Um, the U.S. and its partners have also launched task forces targeting individuals and corporations seeking to evade or undermine U.S. sanctions. Um, and, and finally, the U.S. has issued prohibitions on um, any new investment in Russia, on uh, certain Russia-bound exports, including the export of certain designated services to persons in Russia, um, as well as certain Russian origin imports. So taking all of these developments together, a couple of key points that I want to touch on. Uh, first, the sanctions are evolving at a rapid, almost daily pace, often with minimal official guidance. Um, and to further complicate the matter, there are other jurisdictions, for example, the UK, the EU, and Canada that have issued their own sanctions, which may be divergent in some ways from the US sanctions. Um, so all of this really underscores uh, the importance of taking a proactive, um, and global approach to compliance with the Russia sanctions. Um, and we'll touch on some of these points uh, later on the podcast. Turning it back over to you, Simon. Thanks, Kim. Um, I just want to stay with you for a moment. Um, the FinCEN alert that um, I was speaking to Tom about a moment ago sets out a number of red flags highlighting the government's concern um, about traditional sanctions evasion vehicles, as well as emerging threats posed by convertible virtual currency transactions. Kim, of the red flags, were there any that caught your eye in particular? Sure. Um, actually, uh, OF, uh, I'm sorry, not OFAC, FinCEN, uh, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, recently issued two alerts in March um, that highlight efforts to evade the Russia-related sanctions and that identify red flags to help financial institutions to identify um, potential sanctions evasion activity. Um, the first alert was issued on March 7, and that really focuses on um, efforts by Russian and, and Belarusian actors to evade U.S. sanctions through the use of the U.S. financial system. Um, and it identified around 10 or so red flags to assist in identifying potential sanctions evasion activity. Um, the second alert uh, on March 16 highlights the importance of identifying and reporting suspicious transactions that involve um, high value assets of sanctioned Russian elites and their family members and proxies. So for example, 
real estate, artwork, precious metal, stones and jewelry, luxury yachts and vehicles and the like. And that alert underscores um, that sanctioned Russian elites and their proxies might seek to evade sanctions through buying and selling these assets. And it provides an additional 17 or so red flags to assist in identifying suspicious transactions. So taking all of these red flags together, um, there are two that in particular that caught my attention. Um, the first is the use of legal entities or arrangements to hide ownership source of funds or the involvement of sanctioned countries in a transaction. And the second is the use of third parties to hide the identity of sanctioned persons and or PEPs, politically exposed persons, um, seeking to hide the origin or the ownership of their funds. Um, I would say that these red flags are probably among the most prevalent that we've seen um, in day-to-day in -day practice. It's really not uncommon when dealing with Russian counterparties to encounter very complicated and opaque corporate structures with dozens of intermediary entities that make it very, very difficult to identify the ultimate beneficial owners in a transaction. Um, we also frequently encounter the use of third parties or proxies to obscure the involvement of Russian sanctioned parties or sanctioned jurisdictions in a transaction. For example, um, we might encounter transactions where a sanctioned party recently sold its ownership interest to a close family member or an associate. Um, and in those instances, OFAC has cautioned companies to exercise sufficient due diligence to determine that any purported divestment actually did occur and that the transfer of ownership interest wasn't merely um, a sham transaction. So just to summarize quickly before turning it back over, um, Simon, I think these alerts collectively put the financial services community on notice of um, the specific types of activities that they need to be monitoring and potentially reporting. And really the key message that FinCEN and OFAC keep coming back to is that AML and sanctions compliance obligations um, apply to virtual currency transactions, just as they do to transactions that involve fiat currency. Um, and I, I think FinCEN and OFAC are really expecting a higher level of vigilance from financial institutions, and we should anticipate continued scrutiny and pressure on the industry in the months ahead. Thanks, Kim. That's really helpful. And Tom, as my last question, um, given that financial institutions have been put on notice um, by these alerts, what should financial institutions be doing now? Well, uh, Kim, to some extent, has touched on, on one thing that all financial institutions need to be doing. And, and, and un unfortunately for the, the people who follow sanctions compliance matters in those institutions, they know full well what a day-to-day -day task this has become to keep up with the alerts and to understand uh, what types of entities are sanctioned. Uh, because once those, that information is provided under the OFAC regime, you have an automatic legal obligation to ensure compliance that you are not then providing services or facilitating transactions with uh, entities or people that have been uh, uh, sanctioned by the United States. Um, from an anti-money laundering standpoint, and as Kim noted, these things often go hand in hand. So to, to, they're in large measure, um, you, you need to then adapt your procedures to ensure that you're starting to uh, be able to be compliant in the way that FinCEN has directed you to. 
these red flags, and, and Kim noted a couple of important ones, uh, these red flags are essentially, you know, they, they are given as, as, as so that institutions can prioritize what they are looking for. Uh, so there's, there's Vincent and, 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 and then the, the financial services regulators that, for example, the OCC and the Federal Reserve and the FDIC uh, will want to see that the institutions they regulate have adjusted their procedures to deal specifically with these red flags and that, that they are not only aware of them, but they can show that within their procedures, there's additional steps they've taken. So, you know, uh, are, they, are they doing things with uh, uh, currency, uh, cryptocurrency exchanges to get those, those kinds of transactions special attention? Uh, are, they, are they looking at the kinds of situations where there may be intermediaries involved or where jurisdictions that are not known to have the most stringent regulatory regimes are all of a sudden popping up in the midst of transactions. So the ability to be able to adjust and to identify those kinds of situations are, are, are key to uh, what institutions should be doing uh, to uh, adjust and, and to follow what, what's expected of them under these, under these advisories. Uh, that the, I would point out and is, is that um, beneficial ownership uh, information is an area that uh, the financial services industry in the United States has had to step up its game on in the last uh, three or four years or so. There's been a great deal of emphasis on understanding who the beneficial owners are of entities that may be involved in transactions, particularly if those are closely held entities, not publicly traded and where little is known about them or little is known about their jurisdiction of incorporation. So another, another takeaway from this is uh, as, as, as institutions evaluate these transactions, as in, institutions evaluate the parties involved, are they sure that they understand how, who the beneficial owners are of, of entities that may be involved in these transactions and, and should they be doing more? Because that, that's, that's where the, the tripping points may be with respect to complying with some of these, these obligations. So, um, so in terms of, 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 of steps to be taken in light of this alert, uh, focusing on beneficial ownership uh, obligations, ensuring that the red flags are, are reflected in your procedures that, 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 so that you can demonstrate to your examiners and supervisors down the road that you indeed have taken steps to do your best to comply with these, and then to, to keep uh, up with the daily drumbeat or almost daily drumbeat of information that comes from OFAC in terms of sanctions compliance. Thanks, Tom, for those really helpful insights. And my thanks also to Kim uh, for her very helpful views earlier on. That concludes the US part of the podcast. In this part of the podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Manfred Dietrich, who is a partner in our Luxembourg office. Manfred, it's great to have you here. And to begin with, um, for my first question, I just want to ask you, um, what activity are you seeing as a consequence of the EU sanctions on Russia? Thank, thanks very much, Simon. Uh, pleasure to be here uh, as well. Um, well, Maybe first, um, we should um, um, uh, say that um, overall, um, our, our regulator identified that only less than 0.3% of the assets under management 
um, in, in Luxembourg funding structures show an exposure to, to Russian residents, which is um, then, of course, bringing everything to, to a level uh, which is not a, a massive market share. Um, they, they also um, uh, report that some notifications um, uh, of large redemptions uh, in, in certain funds have been received, uh, but so far there, there is no substantial redemption pressure in the Luxembourg fund structures, which I think is a, is a, good, um, a, a good result so far. Um, they, of course, uh, alerted everybody to be very vigilant uh, when it comes to um, uh, uh, um, activity also outside, let's say, uh, investments, uh, let's say, concerning their systems, concerning cyber attack uh, uh, topics and so on. Um, but, um, uh, and, they, and they carried out a, a risk analysis uh, um, um, and were um, uh, alerting people that they, that they may uh, come and launch uh, on-site checks uh, when they identify something uh, where they would like to see how things are, are going um, 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 in, in practice. Yeah. Um, and an overall freeze of assets uh, of sanctioned persons has been, um, um, uh, has been uh, around uh, 2.5 billion uh, euros. Um, and um, so far, apparently, no one has applied for an authorization to derogate from, from financial restrictive measures. Uh, I think an important item um, or uh, an observation on the market is uh, that uh, when we speak to, to service providers, um, uh, the tendency is that really currently, even though not concerning sanctioned persons, but uh, in relation to Russian residents, uh, business uh, uh, is, let's say, put not on hold, but it is uh, where it is existent, uh, um, just in a preserving mode, um, and and not in a um, um, uh, we want to do more mode. And in any case, a new onboarding uh, of um, of Russian origin uh, initiators or um, uh, of uh, structures linked to Russian residents um, is currently uh, definitely, I would say, almost not happening. But that, that would be um, a, a brief uh, statement on, uh, on, this, on this first question. Okay, um, let's move on to, to our next question now. And in the updater that you helped produce, it mentions that the CSSF issued on the 31st of March this year, um, detailed Q&As on fund liquidity and management tools, including the use of side pockets. Um, could you give our listeners your thoughts on the options given for side pockets and any issues that fund managers should particularly keep in mind? Yeah, I, I mean, um, side pockets, we, we all saw um, um, after uh, uh, the financial crisis of 2008. So it's not something which is, is new to the market or a, a new um, uh, uh, type of um, mechanic uh, used. But um, just to remind the three options, um, basically um, the first option concerns that uh, you put the, the illiquid um, assets in a, in a separate share class. Um, uh, and uh, the other two options concern, well, either uh, create um, 
new uh, subfund in an umbrella or a new fund structure to put the illiquid um, assets there or um, uh, to do so, but um, then put uh, this newly established uh, part uh, being either a subfund or a new fund into liquidation. What, what is um, an important item I think to mention is the assessment of what would be in the best interest of the shareholders um, needs to be made thoroughly and there must be um, a, a clear justification of a, of a management body um, why the decision to do uh, one out of the three would be the most appropriate in the case at hand or maybe only the only one uh, um, because of course uh, when it comes to uh, for instance usage structures um, uh, you need to also comply with uh, the respective usage rules and that regardless whether you are um, uh, a new uh, subfund or whether you are a new structure and um, that could lead to, to problems when it comes to diversification. Uh, it could also um, uh, lead potentially um, uh, uh, to problems that um, um, a new fund uh, bringing together the uh, assets uh, which are illiquid would not even qualify as a usage fund because um, the, uh, the level of uh, importance of these assets would be too high for a usage fund uh, when it's outside the, the previous structure. So it's um, uh, something where also, let's say the entire management body needs to be aware of respecting the usual way of creating uh, these either uh, share classes or new sub funds or new funds. Uh, then uh, in the option free uh, together with the liquidation, um, you need to proceed as it is foreseen by your uh, um, fund. And uh, you need also to inform properly investors um, which are concerned um, uh, about uh, what is happening and involve them in uh, uh, the structuring um, uh, elements where uh, uh, there is requirement. So, there is no carve out as to the respect of a the um, uh, proper uh, proceeding when it comes to creation um, uh, of the uh, uh, solutions and b also no carve out when it comes to proper information about it okay manfred that's very helpful thank you for your thoughts um on the ccs q a's um on side pockets um thanks also for your earlier thoughts on what you're seeing in the luxembourg uh, market and that concludes the short update from luxembourg In this final part of the podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Wilson Eng, a financial services partner in Singapore. Wilson, welcome. And to begin with, um, Singapore has imposed unilateral sanctions on Russia following its invasion of Ukraine, with the Singapore Ministry of Foreign Affairs issuing specific measures comprising of export controls and financial measures. In terms of the financial measures, can you start by setting the scene, telling our listeners what these are? 
Sure, thank, thanks, um, Simon. So as a member of the United Nations, Singapore implements resolutions passed by the UN Security Council through domestic laws. Um, and, and that tends to be through the UN law for non-financial institutions and the MAS Act for financial institutions. And obviously in this case, the UN Security Council couldn't pass a resolution to impose sanctions on, on, on Russia. So, um, so Singapore was not able to implement uh, UN-related uh, sanctions. So it was, I think, fair to say that there was some surprise when Singapore decided to join the international efforts to sanction Russia and impose unilateral sanctions. As you rightly pointed out, the nature of the sanctions imposed are twofold. So firstly, there is the export control component. There was a ban on the transfer of military and dual-use items to Russia that can be used as weapons to inflict harm on the Ukrainians or contribute to cyber attacks. And then there are the financial measures. So the MAS or the Monetary Authority of Singapore issued two notices, um, SNRNO1 and SNRNO2. Now, both of these notices took effect immediately and apply to all financial institutions in Singapore. That would include banks, finance companies, insurers, capital markets, intermediaries, securities exchanges, and payment services providers. So it's quite broad. And the financial restrictions were targeted at four designated Russian banks and certain yet to be designated entities as well as activities in Russia that include fundraising activities benefiting the Russian government. So these financial measures imposed via the MAS notices include various prohibitions, such as prohibitions against dealing with and the freezing of assets of designated banks and designated entities, um, against entering into financial transactions or providing financial assistance or services in relation to the delivery of certain items. And these would be the items subject to export control measures that I mentioned earlier. There are also prohibitions against entering into certain financial transactions or providing financial assistance or services in relation to the raising of new funds for the Russian government and the central bank of the Russian Federation. Uh, and then there are prohibitions on entering into financial transactions um, in relation to the breakaway uh, regimes, uh, regions of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. And then finally, there are prohibitions against entering into certain digital payment token transactions. So digital token, um, payment token service providers or crypto exchanges are therefore prohibited specifically from facilitating transactions that could actually aid the circumvention of these financial measures. So today, MAS has designated four Russian banks. Uh, it has yet to identify the designated entities and may do so in due course. And so I think we need to be watching out for that space because the sanctions landscape is constantly evolving. Uh, one thing to add is that the financial uh, measures notices also impose a duty on financial institutions to provide information to the MAS. So if a FI has any fact or information about transactions or even a proposed transaction that is prohibited or has possession, custody or control or these funds or assets or economic resources owned or controlled by the designated banks or entities or has any information about transaction in respect of these funds, assets, or economic resources owned by the banks or designated entities, then they must immediately inform the MAS. 
uh, and they must uh, in provide further information relating to the fund's assets, resources, transactions, or anything that the MAS requires. So it's quite a quite a list of stringent measures that are in place, Simon. Thanks, Wilson. That's a really helpful um, summary. I just want to turn now to, to another point. Um, in addition to the MAS notices, the Singapore Exchange has also issued guidance for SGX listed issuers on the Singapore Exchange's expectations on the management of sanctions related risks. Um, I know these are covered in our, our data, but are there any that you would particularly draw firms attention to? Yeah, of course. Um, so this is an additional overlay for Singapore listed companies. So the Singapore Stock Exchange Regulator or SGX RegCo published certain guidance setting out expectations on the management of sanctions related risks on internal controls and risk management systems, the assessment of exposure to sanctions risk and the disclosure of any sanctions impact. So the guidance, while they apply to you know, sanctions in general, they're, they're not only applicable to the Singapore sanctions. So it's actually broader than that. So amongst various things, the, um, the guidance provides that in assessing whether the listed company has exposure or a nexus to sanctions related risk, um, it may be appropriate for that issuer to obtain legal advice on whether its business dealings may violate any sanctions. And if there is a material risk uh, or change in the risk of the issuer being subject to sanctions, then that issuer should immediately announce that uh, inherent risk exposure on SGX net, uh, which is, which is a, a, a communication uh, platform uh, and inform, uh, make an announcement on whether it has obtained legal advice. So these announcements should also include an assessment of the financial and operational impact to the issuer. So we know that, um, and that the SGX uh, RegCo has queried a number of listed issuers on their potential exposure to sanctions-related risks in connection with their operations outside of Singapore. Uh, and we've seen some of these listed issuers have to uh, really respond and get uh, the relevant advice and input to, to give uh, the replies to, to the stock exchange. Thanks, Wilson, that's, that's really helpful. And for my third question, um, are there any other regulatory issues related to the sanctions that you are seeing in the market that firms should be aware of? I think from a regulatory perspective, apart from you know, grappling the increasingly complex sanctions landscape, uh, we, we need to be alive to the risk of being caught up in schemes to evade sanctions, um, and not just because of the sanctions imposed by Singapore, but that of other countries uh, as well. So uh, two recent developments come to mind. Firstly, there was a Singapore-based telecoms and electronics wholesaler. Uh, in late March of this year, the US OFAC uh, actually announced that it was designated, designating this Singapore company for being owned or controlled by or acting on behalf directly or indirectly for the Russian government. So this company uh, unfortunately seems to have been caught up with a procurement network that was engaged in proliferation at the direction of Russian intelligence services uh, and, and has been designated by OFAC as such. So unfortunately, globalization has created these logistics networks um, and, and, and companies can be really ensnared and tripped up in them. Um, and a second development is a recent decision by the Singapore High Court involving 
um, certain individuals, one of whom is a Singapore national, another who is a Russian national. Uh, and the case involves the foreign ownership of shell companies in Singapore. So what happened was that um, these individuals were uh, convicted of cheating offenses. Essentially, they tried to circumvent KYC and AML procedures in the setting up of shell companies in Singapore. And these shell companies then opened bank accounts. And while the bank accounts were actually owned by, uh, beneficially owned by Russians, the, the, the paperwork actually indicated that a Singaporean resident was the director and a Singapore resident uh, was also the ultimate beneficial owner. That turned out to be untrue. Uh, and so these individuals were convicted under the penal code. So I think firms should be aware and alive to such regulatory risks in dealing with businesses that have a potential Russian uh, nexus or any sanctioned territory for, for that matter. I think this case demonstrates the willingness of Singapore authorities to really trace up the ownership chain to ascertain who are the ultimate beneficial owners. And that's really a sign of commitment by the regulators here to the AML and the KYC kind of um, requirements that are part of the regime in Singapore. Thanks, Wilson. That's really interesting um, regarding the tracing of the ownership chain. Um, as my final question, um, just keeping really with market developments, what do you think are the knock-on effects of the sanctions on sort of trade, business, and financial transactions? Yeah, that's that's really interesting because apart from the uh, the, the, the direct impact of the sanctions, which prohibit certain transactions, as I had mentioned earlier on, the reality is that the, there are practical outworkings and knock-on effects. So certain sanctions uh, regimes. Um, has led to banks and financial institutions actually actively seeking to de-risk by refusing to do business with designated individuals and people from certain um, territories or even anyone associated or near to them uh, just because of the level of risk and the cost and the burden of compliance in, involved. So certain individuals affiliated or associated with territories or other entities may actually find it challenging to engage in transactions in Singapore because, not because it is prohibited to do so, but because financial institutions are taking the step of not wanting or disengaging themselves. Uh, unfortunately, this also creates a demand for people who are willing to circumvent the law um, and, and thereby creating that kind of shell company and, and obfuscation that I mentioned earlier. And I think from a contracting standpoint, now that Singapore has imposed autonomous sanctions, which is really quite um, unprecedented, it therefore means that sanctions clauses that were previously you know, narrowly phrased, focusing only on UN or certain well-established sanctions regimes uh, may need to be broadened to take into account Singapore's uh, autonomous sanctions regime as well and the obligations that um, come under it. So care will need to be taken to ensure that companies have the ability to deal with all these uh, unforeseen disruptions or difficulties as a result of the follow-on effects uh, of the sanctions developments. So I think keeping on top of the sanctions uh, developments around the world, uh, having an adequate notification um, system in place, uh, and for companies to react such that they would be able to take into account their risk 
and come up with alternative performance uh, of the contract in the event of any kind of sanctions development. That's great. Thank you, um, Wilson, for that really helpful and comprehensive um, update. And that concludes this Regulation Around the World podcast. My thanks to the partners from our Global Financial Services Group for sharing their, their insights with us. And thank you too for listening. Goodbye.